And so we are picking up here in our uh, Foundations sermon series. So Cody and Amanda and the boys had the opportunity to go down to the beach again. Two trips to Florida in one summer, man. That's, that's doing vacation right. So they got to... <laughs> So they got to go down to Florida again and, uh, and have some time with family. And so we were, we were happy that they were able to get that time. And so uh, I was scheduled to preach. And so if you recall, last time we were in the foundation series, we talked about who we are as, as men and women and created an image of God and, and how sin has impacted us and, and marred that image. And, and then I told you a lot of bad news. And then I promised you that the next time we got into it, we were going to get to hear the good news. The problem with that is I screwed up the preaching schedule. And so I forgot that we had another sermon in August. And so I told Joe, who's preaching next time in September, hey, yeah, the next sermon, ser sermon in our series is what is the gospel? And so he started preparing for that. And then we realized, oh, shoot, I missed one. So we're actually going to put that on pause. And he's going to touch on that in September. And we're going to actually move ahead and we're going to talk about who the Holy Spirit is. So that's what we're going to be talking about here today. So today I think we're going to talk about what might be surprisingly one of the most difficult topics that we're going to cover in this whole sermon series. And why do I say that? Well, when it comes to the topic of the Holy Spirit, there's just a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of dif different perspectives. There's a lot of different people who feel really strongly and really passionately about different perspectives of the Holy Spirit. And so it can be a really touchy subject sometimes. It can be one that really incites some disagreement among believers, and it can just be something where you can sometimes step on some toes. So this is going to be a difficult question that we're going to look at today. There's some people that really um, feel very passionately about the Holy Spirit. There's some segments of Christianity that really believe strongly about how the Holy Spirit works. If you're, if you're familiar with the, the charismatic or the Pentecostal areas of Christianity, they have very strong beliefs about how the Holy Spirit works in their day-to-day uh, -day lives that is different from how we would probably say here at The Journey how we believe the Holy Spirit works. And, and so there's just some, some disagreement there. Uh, on the other hand, in many Christian circles, the Holy Spirit is kind of, I, I hate to say it this way, but it's functionally ignored, right? So we might talk about the Holy Spirit in our um, our teaching ministry, we might sing about the Holy Spirit in our worship ministry, we might, you know, think about the Holy Spirit and talk about the Holy Spirit in our statements of faith, but then when it comes down to the real day-to-day -day interaction, the way we live our lives, we don't really rely on the Spirit at all, you know, he kind of just becomes this, like, imaginary friend, you know, it's like, well, yeah, I got the Holy Spirit, he's my buddy, you know, he's my imaginary friend. I can't really show you any evidence of, of him being active in my life. I don't really rely on him very much. He's just, but I know he's there. He's my imaginary friend. All right, so we got kind of two broad, or, or, you know, the pendulum can kind of swing both ways. And I think really where we want to be is somewhere more in the middle of that. The reality is that topics like the Holy Spirit and the other things that we've been talking about here, they're just, they're, they're just really important for us to understand. That's why we wanted to do this sermon series. It's really important for us to understand these things, not just to be aware of them, not just to know like, oh, hey, yeah, in Christianity there's this thing called the Holy Spirit and, and we should believe in that, right? Not just to be aware of it, but to really have deep convictions and beliefs about 
what the Holy Spirit, who he is, how he works in our lives, how he ministers to us. It's interesting that recent polling shows that nearly 60%, 60% of professing Christians don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a real true being, that he's more of just this like symbol of God's power in the world, but he's not a real, he doesn't really exist. That's extremely problematic for our faith, isn't it? Right? I mean, that really impacts the way that we think, the way that we interact, the way that we um, you know, approach the mission of the church, all of those things that rely so heavenly, heavily based in Scripture on the Holy Spirit, if we don't believe that he's real, six out of ten Christians don't believe that, it's extremely problematic. It's also problematic that 20% of Christians believe that Jesus was just an ordinary man. He sinned like the rest of us. That's problematic. Also, 40% don't believe that Satan or hell really exists. That's also incredibly problematic. But those are topics for other sermons. The point is that too many Christians, they just want to be spoon-fed with the truth. They don't want to dig into it. They don't want to learn anything for themselves. They just want to be spoon-fed. And when you go to the faith with that perspective, when that's the way you approach things, then you're open to just receiving and accepting and believing anything that someone's going to tell you. As long as they package it up real nice and they make it look real appealing and it, it lines up with your ideology and the way you think the world should work and, and you're comfortable with it, it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, it doesn't really make you have to change anything about your life, you're willing to accept it and believe it and teach it to other people and that's incredibly problematic. See, we think all of this heavy, weighty, doctrinal stuff is the stuff for academics and pastors to worry about, but, you know, us regular Christians, we don't have to worry about those things. Someone will teach us what we're supposed to believe, and, and we'll just know, and it doesn't really matter for us. You know, it's like, hey, I'm cool with Jesus. You know, I think he's pretty cool. I like him. Um, I'm a decent person, so I think he probably is pretty happy with me, and, and I'm cool with that. I'm cool with living my life that way. So we've got a lot of Christians and a lot of churches that are teaching all types of ridiculous things about what the faith actually is. And all of this stuff falls outside of the faith. It's, it's heterodox. It's outside of what is, is orthodox, what is believed from the church throughout history, what Jesus has taught us, what we see in the scriptures. It falls out of bounds. And we've got tons of churches and Christians that are professing these things, that are teaching them to other people, that are getting them out there, and they're, they're, they're flying all of this stuff under the banner of Christianity. So there's just all this confusion in the world about what Christians even believe, even within the church, and it's just incredibly frustrating. It makes me want to pull my hair out, which is problematic because my wife tells me that it's getting a little thin back there. So here's where I want to do today. I want to seek to clear the air up a little bit about the Spirit and the topic of the Holy Spirit. So I want to look exclusively at what Jesus has to teach us about the Holy Spirit and the person and work of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to spend all of our time there today. And in doing that, we won't dig in really a whole lot to several aspects about the Holy Spirit that are important, but we're just not going to have time to dig into all of that. So as I've been, the disclaimer I've been putting at the front of all of these sermons is there's just a lot of information here and there's a lot that we're going to not be able to touch on. So we're not going to talk about things like spiritual gifts. That's a, that's a topic for another sermon. So we talked about that a lot during the book of Acts and Cody was able to offend a whole lot of people 
teaching us about the gifts of the Spirit. And so we will eventually touch on that. I think maybe I'll save that one for you, Joe. You can have that one, and you can make everybody angry if you. But that's, a, that's an ancillary topic we're not going to touch on today. We're not going to look a lot about the history of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, which is incredibly important, but it just time precludes us from being able to do that. So there's going to probably be questions that you're going to have, and of course, I'm always happy to, to try to answer them and provide you resources that can help with those things. But what I really want to focus on is John chapter 14 and what Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit and how that impacts our lives right now, because I think that's really what we most need to hear as a church. So that's our agenda, and that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to start in John chapter 14. We're just going to take uh, the first two verses of the section, starting in verse 15, or three verses, 15 through 17, to start out. There, John writes, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is Jesus talking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the first and perhaps maybe the most important thing that we need to see here today in, in Jesus' teaching is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is exclusively for believers. It's exclusively for Christians. This is unique because there's lots of ways that we talked about when we talked about God the Father and we talked about Jesus in which they minister to and um, bless and impact all people, right? So God is the creator of all things. He gives us life. He sustains us. He, he keeps the universe running. Um, he, you know, he, he's created and ordained all the systems that keep us alive, the sun and the, the air and the, the water that falls from the sky and waters the ground to provide us food. All of those things are ways in which God blesses all people, whether we, whether we accept him, whether we affirm him, whether we glorify him with our lives or not. We're blessed by God the Father in those ways. It's also true that, that Christ's invitation in the gospel to come and, and follow him and, and, and his atoning work on the cross is, is an open offer to all people, right? We as Christians are called to take the gospel into the entire world and that we should, should share the gospel with anyone and everyone that we meet. We shouldn't, there should be no, um, no prerequisites for that. We should just share the gospel openly with everyone. It's available to all people. But the presence of the work of the Holy Spirit is absent in the life of non-believers. That's what demarcates or differentiates a believer from a non-believer. It's the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's this reality that differentiates us. To be in Christ, to be a believer, a true child of God, is to be um, reborn into new life in the Spirit. It's like this, you know, you were born dead in your sins and your trespasses, so you came forth from your mother's womb spiritually dead, and every single day of your life you are spiritually dead. From the time you were born to the time you take your last breath. So the question is, well, so what did I do wrong to deserve that, right? Well, you were born, and that's wildly unpopular. People don't like to hear that, we don't like to believe that, we don't like to have to accept that, but that's what by the Bible says. This is the reality for every single human being who has ever lived or who will ever live since Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit in the garden. It's just the reality that we're born into. 
Now, if you think that's unpopular, then check this out. If we're in this situation not because of something that we did, right? So we're not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. That's an important thing to understand. Right? It's, a, it's a question not of what we do, but who we are and our nature. So if we are in this situation not because of something we did, then there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out of that situation. That's incredibly unpopular too because in our culture it's all about doing your best and, and tightening up your bootstraps and, and, and getting it done, right? But there's nothing that we can do so this is super unpopular. We don't like this. But Jesus says it here in verse 17 that the world cannot receive the helper or the spirit because it doesn't see him or know him. So the spirit's ministry is to the church. That's big C, the church universal to us Christians that's who he ministers to. And what is this ministry of the Spirit? Well, that's what we're going to learn here today. We'll keep going in the remainder of the chapter here from verse 18 through 31, and we'll learn about what Jesus teaches us. Jesus continues, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, and you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let's go from here. So Jesus teaches us uh, several really important truths in this passage of Scripture about the Spirit here. The first one that I think we see is that the Spirit accomplishes regeneration. We see that in verses 18 through 20. The second one is that the Spirit applies Christ's redeeming work to the lives of believers. We see that in verses 21 through 24. And then finally, the Spirit teaches us and illuminates our minds. He comforts us and sustains us and preserves us. We see that in verses 25 through 31. So this is a bit of a departure from the way we've been teaching um, through this sermon series where we focused a lot about who God is, who Jesus is, what the scriptures are. We focused a lot who man is. We focused a lot about all those questions um, from that perspective, like who who are we? Who is God? Who is Jesus? And in this sermon series, to be able to teach you about who the Holy Spirit is, I think the easiest way to get at it is to talk less about who he is and more about what he does. Jesus describes him as the helper, 
And so I think it's important for us to understand how he helps us. So the first one that we're going to look at is that the Spirit accomplishes regeneration. We're going to look again at verses 18 through 20. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So again, what is it that demarcates believers from non-believers? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, or the absence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And Jesus makes it clear that prior to, to coming into the, to the life of a believer, that we are like orphans. So before the Spirit comes to us, we're like orphans. And what do we know about orphans? Well, orphans are someone who is outside of a family, right? They don't have any family. For whatever reason, they, they are alone. They do not have a family. They do not belong anywhere. Legally speaking, especially in Christ's day, an orphan had very little rights. There would be very little um, opportunity for an orphan. So an orphan would be somebody who's outside of the family. So we are outside, but when the Spirit comes, he will usher us into the community of faith. So formerly we're outside, but then he brings us in. And then we'll know that we are loved and that we belong. We see that in verse 20. So what theological term uh, would we use to describe the moment in time when the Spirit comes to us and when he rejuvenates our hearts and our minds and brings us back to life? We talk about that in terms of being born again, right? Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about being born again, and Nicodemus asks him questions like, well, I don't understand. How can you be born again? How can you return to your mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, you misunderstand me. It's not being born again in the flesh, but rather being born again in the spirit, that we are born again in the spirit. That's where this term comes from. The way that the, the Bible describes the miracle of this being born again or regeneration is that our formerly dead hearts are brought back to life. That they once were dead and now they're brought back to life. And, and when they're brought back to life, that we are now enabled and, and, and able to respond in faith to the gospel. See, a dead heart, a dead person can't do anything, right? We, we understand that. When you're dead, you're done. You can't do anything. There's no coming back from that. So when we're dead, we can't respond in faith, but we need to be made alive. And this is the work of the Spirit in this, this act of being born again. This act or this movement of God is accomplished through the power of the Spirit. And very quickly, I think it's helpful for our understanding of Trinitarian theology and how the Trinity works if I just make this distinction here. So we've been discussing a lot about uh, in the series about Orthodox Christianity and what we should believe and it affirms that God exists as, as one but three, right? So one God in three persons. The, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is incredibly confusing. It's incredibly hard to understand. It's incredibly hard to put into human terms because it's miraculous. It's supernatural. It exists outside of anything that we know and can understand with our, our little finite minds. But it's the reality that we see in the scripture so one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is equally and fully God. So same nature, same will, same mind, same power. All the stuff that makes up the person of the Trinity is the same between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But they are distinct in terms of how they interact with, with their creation. 
in terms of their economy, or that's what they do, or how they interact with us, particularly in terms of salvation. So the best way, I think, to understand this distinction is to think about it as this progression, right? So this, this, this progression from decreeing or purposing to accomplishing and then to applying. So God the Father decrees and purposes, Christ the Son accomplishes, and then the Spirit applies this work to our lives. God is, is uh, present in, at all points because all three persons are God, so each point is, a, is a, the work of God in our lives, but each person has this distinct role to play in the, in the act of salvation, in God's plan for salvation, and how it applies to us. I know that's a lot for us to process. I know it can sometimes be hard for us to understand when we talk about the Trinity, but I think that distinction is important. So if you can just kind of stick a pin in that and keep that in the back of your minds, I think it'll help us understand um, as we move through the rest of the text here. And it segues well into the second thing that Jesus teaches us here about the Spirit. The second thing that we see is that the Spirit applies Christ's redeeming work of salvation to the, believe, to the lives of believers. Uh, let's look again at verses 21 through 24. He says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I think this section of Scripture is a perfect example of why context is so important. So if we listen to that out of context, if someone just were to take that little section of Christ's teaching out of context and were to put it before us, I think we would get the wrong perspective there. If I just read that out of context, I would start to think a lot that maybe salvation is a lot about about my work, right? What can I do? Like, if I love God, if I follow God, if I obey God, if I'm pleasing to God, then he will love me. It sounds a lot like that. If, if I do what God commands me to do, then he will love me. Or to say it another way, that God's love for me is contingent upon my work and what I can do and my ability to be a good and faithful follower. This tends to be the popular understanding of the gospel among a vast number of people. See, legalism and works-based righteousness, it just tends to be our default position. It tends to be where our hearts want to go. I have to be honest, why we gravitate towards that is, is a bit of a mystery to me. Like, if, if my salvation depends on me and my work and, and my ability to follow the rules, I'm going to be in big trouble. I'm not the best rule follower out there. If the good news of the gospel is I have to count on my ability, then that's not very good news at all. In fact, it's, it's bad news, I think. Here's why I think this is so popular, though. You see, we tend to think very highly of ourselves, don't we? Like, as people, we just tend to think very highly of ourselves. And we love to compare ourselves against a, a low standard of righteousness. So we'll look for somebody out there that's, it's messing their lives up worse than we are, and we'll say, well, see, I'm not that guy, right? It's very easy to look around and find somebody who's worse off than you are, and so we love to do that. We say, well, I'm a good person, right? I mean, I pay my taxes. I don't hurt anybody. 
I'm a good person. I mind my own business. I get along with most people. People tend to like me, you know. I don't really, you know, I'm a good person. I'm not a huge jerk. Clearly, I'm the type of person that Jesus wants on his team, right? We also complement this, this high view of ourselves with a very low view of God, don't we? We like to gravitate towards a view of God that makes him like our, our cosmic grandpa, right? That he's, that, you know, grandpas are cool. Like, we love grandpas. Like, a grandpa is going to take you out on the front porch. He's going to sit you down. He's going to give you some life wisdom and knowledge that he's learned through all his years. He's going to tell you just to relax. It'll all be okay. He's not going to, he's not going to get too bent out of shape when you make a mistake. He's just going to take you under his wing and say, yeah, it's okay. I've made mistakes too, but, you know, I learned this. And he's going to give you some more of that wisdom and pass it on to you. He's going to give you a pat on the butt and send you on your way, right? Grandpas are cool. We love grandpas. I miss my grandpa. So if, we are, if we're awesome and, and God's like our grandpa and, and he just wants the best for us and, and, and you know, he just wants to encourage us and, and get us back out there, if we have that kind of theology of salvation that centers around us and our accomplishments, then it's, it's, it's real easy to, to default to that position. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Remember, right before we got to these verses, he was talking about encouraging his disciples and, and, and giving them the promise of this coming helper who will come in his place. You see, Jesus' relationship with his disciples, it was one of, of teacher and student, of mentor-mentee, of, of leader and follower. He led them by example. He took them under their, his wing. He invested deeply in them. Anyone can say to you, hey, you know, do this or don't do that. Anybody can do that. That's easy. But to take somebody and invest deeply in them, to, to, it's so much more impactful. When someone pulls you alongside of them, when they, when they bring you into their life and they invest their life into you and, and they, they have this deep relationship with you and they lead you by example and, they, and they're, they're not afraid to tell you when you're going off the rails, right? It's so much more impactful. Not just going to tell you what to do or where to go, but I'm going to I'm going to go with you. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to bring I'm going to go and I'm going to bring you with me. You see the difference there? See, Jesus says, "I've loved you. I've invested deeply in you. I, I, I've invited you into my family. But I'm going to be leaving you, and now the rubber's got to meet the road, right? I've got to go, and now all of that investment is time for that investment to start to pay dividends." But you're still a work in progress, and I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you this helper who's going to work with you, and this is what we can accomplish together. That's what Jesus is saying here. So by giving us the helper, or the, the paraclete, as you'll sometimes hear it called in, 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 in doctrinal books and in, in theological books, it just it's the, from the Greek word for helper. The paraclete is sometimes how we refer to the Holy Spirit. He's going to dwell with us and in us, and Jesus maintains that deep relationship that he had with his disciples and, he'll, and his children. He'll continue, continually lead them and transform their lives. So the Spirit is continually applying Christ's life and his ministry and his teaching and his atoning work to the lives of believers in this ongoing sense. We're in this relationship with Jesus Christ through the Spirit. We have a deep relationship with our Savior 
through the Spirit. We're united to Him. You've heard me teach a lot about our union with Christ. I think it's just deeply important to the way we understand the gospel, the way we understand um, all of, of Jesus' commands, the way we understand the mission of the church. I mean, union with Christ, I think, is at the center of all of it. It's this union that's, that's established and maintained by the Spirit. And it's this restorative work of the Spirit in our lives that is day by day transforming us more and more and more into the image of Christ. Day by day, we're being rebuilt and remade into the image of Christ. And this is the Spirit's work in applying Christ's salvific work to our lives so that we're being transformed. So regeneration and justification and sanctification, adoption and glorification, all of these big words that we use, to these big doctrines of the faith that, that are so glorious and that we we teach about and we, we, we strive to understand are so instrumental in the way we understand salvation. All of these things, all these beautiful aspects of the gospel are all made manifest in our lives through the work of the Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, the spirit, the same power and spirit that overcame even death is now at work in our lives. Not just our spiritual lives, but our mortal bodies, Paul says. So that's our, our lives right now, here in the present. The lives that we're living right now. The spirit is with us, he dwells in us, he's at work in us, applying all of these things to us. Christ's redeeming work doesn't just have eternal implications Rather, it has implications in the here and now. We often like to think of salvation as the finish line. That like when we get to salvation, we've accomplished something. We're watching the Olympics right now, right? All of these races, swimming races, running races, all of these races, right? Everybody's striving towards the finish line. And we have this mindset so often that salvation is the finish line that we're striving to. And when we get there, the race is over, right? At the end of the race, they stop running. They stop swimming, they stop, they rest because they've accomplished what they were trying to accomplish. But we need to think of salvation as the starting line, right? It's the gun, it's the beep, it's the, that thing that starts the race in the Olympics, right? Whatever it is, when they dive into the water or they start running down the track, that's what salvation is. That's how we need to think about salvation, as the starting line. That's where our lives begin, right? Remember, we were dead. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. So if you're dead, you weren't doing anything. You were dead. You were laying on the floor. You weren't moving. You weren't active. You were dead. We get it, right? We understand how death works. So when we're brought to life, it's, so we're brought to life so that we can do something. Something brand new. We're given a new identity and new life through the Spirit. The third thing that we see here is that the Spirit teaches us and illuminates our minds. He comforts us, he sustains us, and he preserves us. We see that in verses 25 through 31. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. 
and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. See, Jesus here points out more practical ways, I think, that the the Spirit ministers to us. The first one that he mentions is in verse 26. It's the Spirit that renews our minds and illuminates our minds uh, in the Scriptures. So there's a reason that two people can hear the same passage of Scripture or the same gospel presentation, and they respond in completely different ways. One might, might respond positively, one might turn and reject it. There's a reason that, that we're able to have those types of responses. People within the same family, right? But it's, it's oftentimes hard to understand when we look at people's lives and we say, you know, like, like, I grew up with that guy. Like, we grew up in the same church. I heard the same gospel presentations he heard. And, and why am I still here? And why is he where he is? Why did he choose to reject those things, right? Well, it's, it's because the Spirit is at work in that. It's, it's been said that, that, that the Spirit illuminates our minds, that he transforms our minds, that, that, he, that he is at work in all of those things. And so it's this long road sometimes from the head to the heart. Right? It's been said that there's a long road from the head to the heart. And it's the spirit that is, that is making that pathway, that he's making that, that soil fertile to be able to, to receive the truth. See, it, it makes sense, right? If the spirit was the one who inspired all of the scriptures, if, if the human authors of scripture were working under the inspiration of the spirit, if you recall from when Joe taught us through about what are the scriptures, that we talked a lot about how the spirit is, is, you know, God is the author of the scriptures, and he works through inspiration of human authors to put pen to paper and write the words that we now have that we can learn from. And so if it was the spirit that was at work in, in illuminating and inspiring the authors to write them, then it would make sense that it's the same spirit that we need to be able to understand. The implication here is that if we want to really unlock our time in the Bible, if we, if we say, you know, I, I'm, I'm spending all this time in the Bible and I just don't feel, I feel like I'm spinning my wheels, like I'm just not getting anything out of it. If we want to really unlock our time in the Bible, then we need to approach the scriptures humbly and seek the spirit. We need to prayerfully seek the spirit when we approach the scriptures. Like if that's not how we're approaching the scriptures, then it's no wonder that we feel like we're spinning our wheels. And I've been there. I've spent a lot of time there, right? When I start to feel like, I got this, God. Like, I can do it on my own. And then I, and then I start to, to go to the, to, to the scriptures with that mindset. Then I start to find that my time is just not very fruitful. And then the more time I spend in that place, the less I desire to go to the scriptures because I just don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. The problem is not with God. It's not with the scriptures. They will not return void. The problem is with me, right? Because I'm trying to do it on my own. I think I'm smart enough or, or good enough to understand the Bible that I can figure it out all on my own. And I'm not relying on the Spirit. And I'm not prayerfully seeking the Spirit and asking Him to illuminate my mind and my heart to be able to understand these things that I'm reading. Everybody wants to hear God speak, right? Everybody's like, I just, I just wish I could hear God speak, that He would come and that He would speak to me. Everybody desires that, right? Well, well He does. Each and every time we approach the Scriptures with a humble heart, and with a, a, a spirit that is, that is seeking God's spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds, then we will hear God speak. He promises in his scriptures that it will never return void. 
Next we see in verse 27 that the Spirit is the source of all comfort and peace. See, one of the harshest criticisms that non-believers will, will um, wage against Christianity is that it's a crutch, right? That it's a crutch for weak people that, that can't do it on their own. To that I say emphatically, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for giving me your spirit. Because this life is tough, right? Like if, if, I mean, it, it's just tough sometimes. Sometimes things are difficult. Sometimes they're hard. Bad things happen. People get sick. Global pandemics, right? All the stuff that we just faced in the last year. Like, I don't know how people who don't have the faith got through the last year. Let's just be honest. It was tough. We were isolated. It was kind of scary, you know, telling us, like, if you go outside without a mask on, you're going to, like, drop dead. Like, it's the plague, you know? So, I mean, it, it, was, it was tough, and life is tough. And I don't know how we get through it without the Spirit. I legitimately just don't know. See, one of the greatest ministries of the Spirit is to comfort us in times of trouble, in times of trial and difficulties, to bring us peace in times of suffering, to encourage our hearts and our minds in the gospel, in times of anguish, in times of pain, times of loss. It's one of the greatest ministries of the Spirit. It's one of the greatest blessings that, that God gives us through His Spirit. I'm so thankful for it each and every day. I can think of, of like very distinct times in my life where with it, without the Spirit, I don't, I don't know how we would have gotten through it. And Tracy can tell you the same thing. Like Some really dark, difficult times. It's just an invaluable ministry because this life can just be really hard. And Jesus knew what his disciples were getting ready to face. He knew what it would mean for them when he was gone. He knew what was coming for them. He knew the persecution. He knew the struggle. He knew what it would take to advance the gospel. And he knows it till, still today. All around the world. See, we're, a, we're very isolated and insulated from a lot of this stuff because we live here in America and we enjoy great freedom here. But that's not the case for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. The, the gospel always has proceeded on the, on the backs uh, and the blood, sweat, and tears of, of Christians, right? The lives of Christians have been laid down for the advance of the gospel. We don't get that here because it's easy for us. Like, we think, oh, it's really, it's really hard being Americans. Like, we are, we are so blessed. We don't even know. We take so much for granted. I mean, I'm, I take so much for granted. See, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the confidence that we have in and through the Spirit when he says, he who has begun a great work in us will be faithful to see it through to completion. We see here in the closing verses of this chapter that, that God has started a work in us and he will be faithful to finish it. No matter what comes our way, he will be faithful to finish it. So, you see, I, I really like to do projects at my house. Like, I love building stuff. I'm one of those weekend warrior DIY guys. Like, I'm like, like my, my favorite place probably to be is like the tool aisle at Home Depot or Lowe's where they got all the tools. Like, I could just walk down that aisle forever just looking at different tools. Like, oh, that's cool. I could do something with that. Oh, that's really neat. I like that. Like, that's like one of my favorite places to be. I love building stuff. I love doing projects. I love you know, having all the tools. I love going out in my garage and looking at all my different tools. Like, ah, oh, it's cool. I love my tools. But if you've uh, been to my house, 
then you know that like there's still, for like the last two years, there's like a hole in the ceiling in my kitchen. So we had a leak in our upstairs bathroom. And so like I ripped the bathtub out and I had to cut a hole in the ceiling and I had to fix some plumbing and that hole is still in my ceiling. And the reason that that hole is still in my ceiling is because I like to start projects, but I hate finishing them. So I like the part where I get out the hammer and the nail gun and like I'm, I'm like got wood and I'm banging on stuff. I'm, I'm going to town. I like it. I love that part of it. But then you get to like finishing drywall, painting, like not really my cup of tea. Really don't like it. It's messy. It's not very much fun. So I'm like, I know to fix this hole in my ceiling, I got to cut this big chunk of drywall out and it's going to make dust everywhere. I'm going to have to clean all that up. And then I'm going to have to get this heavy piece of drywall. I'm going to have to lug it up there. I'll probably get Kaylin to sit there and help me hold it. She's been doing that since she was like seven years old. She, I was like, hold that there for me. And when she was like, I can barely do it, Daddy. I'm like, you can do it. Just put, like, put your head up there or something, you know. So I'm, I, it's probably child abuse. I don't know. But she was a good helper. She still helps me. So I work well with, with my daughter, Kaylin. But, uh, but you know, I, I just, it's not fun. Right? Like, I, don't, I get to a point in the project where I hit the stuff that I don't like to do, and then I'm like, ugh. And so then it will sit. Like, it took me like four years to finish my basement. Now, how long it took me to like frame up the walls and put up the drywall and do the electrical? About a week. <laughs> the other uh, three years and 51 weeks or whatever was me getting around to finishing the drywall and painting it. You know, so my wife, you know, she's very gracious with me. She'll gently remind me, hey, you gonna, you gonna finish that? But God's not like me, right? He doesn't start a project and he doesn't finish it. He's not like me. God finishes his projects. See, Jesus said that as a good shepherd that he would lead his sheep from, from where they start to, to the finish line, that he would take them with him, that he would not lose even one of them because he's a good shepherd. So Jesus is not, I'll tangle up, I'll just do it right here. Jesus is not like us. He will finish his work. He will finish and accomplish all that he has decided and, and decreed to do in us. And that should be a great encouragement for us, right? That should give us a lot of hope as we move forward, that he is with us, that he is working in us, that he will not leave us. He will not abandon us. We cannot flee far enough away from him. We cannot backslide far enough that he will abandon his love for us, that he will bring us to completion. That's the hope of the gospel, and that's the encouragement that I hope we find today, and that is the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and who he is. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your spirit that ministers to us. We thank you that, that you love us enough to, to stay with us, to stay the course with us, to not abandon us and leave us on our own, but to, to carry us to the finish line. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts and minds to, to the truths of your word, that you would illuminate our, our minds to understand it, that you would remind us day in and day out of your gospel, that, that it's not the finish line, that we haven't reached retirement age, that we can't rest on our laurels, Lord, but that you have saved us, you are with us, you are working in us to do a great work through us, to expand your kingdom, to spread your gospel, to offer hope to all those who are lost, Lord. 
pray that you would just encourage our hearts and our minds in that. We ask these things in the most beautiful name. Amen. Well, we're going to transition now into a time of communion, and we take communion each and every week here at the journey to just celebrate and remember the gospel. And so we take the bread to remember the life of Jesus that was lived for us, that he perfectly obeyed and obeyed.